This week's TribCast is sponsored by UT Health School of Public Health is changing the culture of health through excellence in graduate education, research, and engagement. Visit sph.uth.edu to learn more. And join hashtag BigBangTX2020, the foremost social impact conference in North Texas for transformative dialogue and powerful action around racial, gender, and economic equity. Early bird tickets now on sale at BigBangTX.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tripcast for August 26th, 2020. My name is Matthew Watkins. I am Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. Uh, Alexa, your normal host, is off today, so I'll be filling in with her. Uh, my apologies in advance. Uh, joining us today are um, politics writer Alex Samuels. Hello. Politics writer Patrick Svitek. Hey there. And executive editor and also sometimes a politics writer, Ross Ramsey. Howdy. How's it going? <laughs> Thanks for joining today. Um, as we record this, um, Governor Greg Abbott is about to take the microphone um, to give a press conference on uh, Hurricane Laura, the hurricane that is bearing toward the Texas-Louisiana um, border. Uh, this hurricane, as far as we know, is expected to be a Category 4 storm by the time it reaches the Texas and Louisiana coast. Um at least 20 million people are considered to be in the storm's path. And um, last checked, um, more than half a million have been ordered to evacuate. Uh, we're not going to go too much into the um, hurricane. It's obviously an extremely important event and a, a big event for the state of Texas. But given the fact that we're recording this kind of midday Wednesday, and by the time most people hear this podcast, they will uh, things will likely have changed and developed. We won't go too much into it. But Patrick, you were at, uh, or you you watched Governor Abbott's press conference on this yesterday. What's the message that Abbott is sending to the people of Texas ahead of this storm? Well, I think the one of the more unique messages that he's sending is that people can't forget that the coronavirus pandemic is still very much a real issue in Texas as they uh, make preparations for the storm and as they potentially evacuate for the storm. And so, um, you know, his press conference, uh, multiple of his recent press, press conferences, he stressed that and said people can't forget that just because a hurricane comes to Texas means that uh, COVID-19 leaves. Um, and so he's really been emphasizing that and emphasizing, uh, you know, uh, an evacuation strategy that tries to take that into account. Uh, you know, for example, uh, providing more spacing and distancing on buses that evacuate people. And he's been urging people who evacuate uh, to stay in hotels and motels, you know, more than usual so that families can isolate from other groups or other families that, you know, may be carrying the virus or, or may be putting them at risk. And so, um, that has been, I think, the uh, kind of distinct, uh, you know, storyline in the lead up to this hurricane making landfall. Sure. And, you know, we are obviously thinking about all the people on the coast. You know, I hope hope everyone says, stays safe, both from the virus and the hurricane. Um, you know, obviously not the ideal time to be having something like this happen. But, um, you know, let's just hope that it's not as bad as some people think that it could possibly be. Um 
you know, Patrick, you mentioned the the coronavirus pandemic. The first kind of full subject I wanted to talk about today is the this pandemic that is still going on. And and one of the things that you know we're really looking at is you look at the curves, you look at uh, some of the the latest numbers, and things starting to look a little bit better. Still dire, still dangerous. The the virus is still spreading. But, you know, maybe not quite as bad as it was from from a peak, you know, a few weeks ago. But one thing that could change that that people has people nervous is that schools are starting up. Alex uh, spent Monday, uh, went back to school, uh, visited the campus of Texas State University on their first day of in-person classes. Can you tell us a little about what you saw? Yeah. um, So I went to Texas State. I probably got there at like 9 a.m. with the, the youths. Um, everyone was masked up. The um, youth. So before everybody woke <laughs> up, right? <laughs> uh, one thing I found interesting, I actually parked in the wrong spot and some guy who was basically directing me where to go was like, thank you for wearing a mask. Here's a sticker. And here's also a mint. And they were just handing out these stickers that said like protect and prevent or something like that. And here's um, a parking ticket too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your car is also getting towed, ma'am. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I didn't go to Texas state. Uh, the photographer who I went on assignment with, he went to Texas state. So I don't know how crowded the campus normally is, but as someone who, you know, went to college at the university of Texas at Austin, Hookham, I will just say, I know college campuses are usually pretty bustling on the first day. And it was like a ghost town on that campus. Like, even the Starbucks, the Chick-fil-A, where, like, college students, you know, tend to hover, were pretty empty. So I was uh, very surprised by that. Yeah, it's a big school. It's 30,000 plus. So, you know, mm-hmm. even even you big school kids from UT Austin, you know. <laughs> I mean, in a normal day, that would have been a crowd. Yeah. I think one of the things that people are really paying attention to, we obviously saw, you know, some schools across the country tried to reopen and it didn't go particularly well. The, uh, the Notre Dames, uh, um, a, f- a few others that, you know, either decided to go back to, uh, 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 virtual learning and things like that. And one of the, one of the issues that was kind of raised is you can, you can keep people safe in the classroom, but students are really only in the classroom for two, three hours a day, you know, and what, do, what are you going to do with this, what are you going to do to make sure that those students are following the social distancing protocols for the other 20, 21 hours of the day when, when students are bored and want to see their friends and everything like that? The, you know, there were, I, I believe the Notre Dame closure outbreak that happened there, they linked in some ways to a couple of, um, of frat parties. Um, has, was that much of the messaging at all that you saw at Texas State? I mean, are, are, are they really trying to make sure people are diligent outside of those classrooms? Um, I didn't hear too much from uh, teachers and faculty about outside of the classroom. I think they're more focused on what they're doing uh, in the classroom, whether that be a mix of a Zoom class or an in-person class or some sort of hybrid Um I did talk to one fifth-year senior who has been uh, back in San Marcos since June, and he said that he's seen a lot of people going off to frat parties and whatnot, and that kind of worried him. Um, I did. I talked to an, a freshman who basically said, you know, coronavirus was nothing more than the flu. Of course, no, that's not right. Um, but I think students sort of have these mixed emotions about returning to school. You know, they're excited for some sense of normalcy, but at the same time, the virus could very easily spread. And I think almost every teacher I talked to 
um, said that they didn't think uh, Texas State would continue in-person classes for more than a week or so. A friend of mine at UT, a professor over there, had on social media, I don't think he took the picture, but he, he forwarded it, of a bunch of uh, students who were at a sorority rush. And, and there was a pack of young women um, that looked like, you know, pre-pandemic stage crowding, you know, all on the street uh, over at UT. I mean, it's the same kind of thing, as you mentioned, Matthew, that we've seen at schools like, you know, the University of North Carolina and Notre Dame and stories now coming out of the University of Alabama. This seems to be a regular recurring storyline. It seems like we have reached this point in the state's coronavirus response. Patrick, you've been kind of the, uh, the, the Greg Abbott watcher on, on all this, where things have kind of leveled off. It feels like the, um, that Abbott has kind of found what I, he kind of hopes is the sweet spot here. We haven't heard much about possible changes. We have this mask order in place. Um, you know, we have bars closed. We have, uh, but, you know, restaurants can open and, and there are certain other kind of uh, measures. D does it feel, am I right in kind of making the, the conclusion that, that Abbott, Abbott kind of seems to be thinking this is the way we kind of want to try to ride this out as the, as the virus goes on and, and hopefully schools won't kind of disrupt, disrupt the progress we've been making in the state? Yeah, it seems like he's in a really kind of stay-the-course mood right now. I mean, there's not uh, any real serious indication that he's thinking of um, either loosening restrictions that he's put in place or, you know, going further in putting, uh, you know, new restrictions in place or, or making more strict restrictions that are already in place. So it does seem like he, again, is like, this is kind of a stay-the-course strategy right now. Um, he did have an interview this morning, actually, just before I came on, where he said there are three big events on the horizon um, that are going to determine whether we're going to begin to talk about reopening again. And those three big events are this, this hurricane, uh, Labor Day weekend, um, and then the reopening of schools. And as we, we just discussed, reopening of schools is a, a big, is probably the biggest and most consequential of those three events that he's looking to on the horizon. Um, and so just hearing him make comments like that, it doesn't strike me that he is really thinking, uh, you know, too seriously at this point of, of, you know, reversing any decisions or going in the other direction and making things more strict or, or more restrictive. I mean, it really seems like we are in what he at least thinks is kind of a sweet spot in terms of what rules and regulations are in place statewide at this point. Uh, he's got the numbers going down. I mean, if you look at all of the charts, you know, the the numbers aren't where you want them necessarily, but they're going in the right direction after, you know, peaking, right. you know, late July, early August. And, you know, he's also got experience that he didn't have in April and May. He's seen a major holiday go by. Memorial Day was, you know, sort of attributed uh, or given the credit or blame for a lot of the surge that followed. Uh, the 4th of July was in there. So he's he's seen what loosening the standards does. I think, you know, uh, right now, He's found something that seems to be working. Sure. You know, the, the one thing I, seeing as how this is a, a podcast for political conversations, I mean, the one thing I, I think about when I hear you say, uh, you know, Labor Day being one of those events, the school opening being one of those events, you, I, you continue to kind of think about the, the treacherous political ground that this happens. We saw how much of a beating he took when things took, a turn for the worst the last time 
you know, if that happens again uh, after Labor Day or, you know, in the, in the early part of this school year, that's that's right around the time where you don't want the Republican Party to be taking a big beating. Is that um, is that something you're hearing, you know, people in, in politics and the campaigns you're talking about uh, uh, express worry about in any way? Any thoughts about how they're, they're going to be kind of handling that in the coming weeks and months? Yeah, I think that's a big concern for Republican campaigns right now, if only because of the, you know, timing of it all post Labor Day. I mean, I think that the, you know, there's the eight week uh, time frame that schools can can have under uh, Abbott's rules to, to stay virtual. And so some of them may be returning to in-person instruction, uh, you know, literally days or, you know, a few weeks before Election Day. And so, um, again, I think it's a, a top of mind concern for a lot of Republican campaigns uh, just because of the timing, if anything else. Um, now, we, we know that, you know, going back to school is going to increase the spread of this virus. I mean, that's that's common sense. And so I think it's, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, how primed voters are for that inevitable scenario to happen and how much they want to hold Republican officials accountable for that. Speaking of politics, we're um, into the third night of the Republican National Convention uh, today. Uh, this week features the sole Texas elected official who earned a primetime speaking spot. That would be Dan Crenshaw, the U.S. representative of Houston. What, any, what do we expect from Crenshaw tonight? Anything, anything exciting? What do, what, do, what do we think we'll, we'll hear from him on the convention stage? I'm guessing red meat. <laughs> <laughs> you know he's in he's in a position to sort of you know lay down some cover fire here for you know republicans and uh to you know the further you are down the ballot like he is the more of kind of the dirty work of politics you take on you know you don't want the president attacking somebody so you put somebody further down the chain you know making their points and we've seen that from other speakers on monday night um and on tuesday night and i would expect that kind of refrain to continue. It's the same thing that the down ballot, a lot of the down ballot Democrats were doing during their convention last week. Yeah, I mean, you know, Crenshaw is an interesting rising star because, you know, unlike some of the speakers that you saw at the convention this week and that you'll see later in the week, he's he hasn't necessarily built profile as being effusively pro-Trump. I mean, no doubt he supports the president and has said very nice things about the president. Um, but I wouldn't say he's an effusively pro-Trump rising star. At the same time, he talks about a lot of the issues that have animated Trump's, you know, political identity, uh, railing against political correctness um, and, you know, alleged dishonesty in the media. And so there's certainly some overlap there. And I think the things that they are focused on from a political perspective, but he hasn't necessarily been, um, you know, one of these stalwart Matt Gates type, you know, Trump defenders, you know, praising him at every turn and thinking he can do no wrong. So I doubt he'll use this uh, speaking slot to air any disagreements with the president. Uh, but I do think he navigates an interesting divide there within the the, the next generation of, of Republican stars. Sure. Yeah, I think we've definitely we've most notably seen Crenshaw be willing to kind of part with Trump on the, the foreign policy front. Um, Crenshaw being a uh, former Navy SEAL, uh, famously wounded in, in battle, uh, was uh, 
blind briefly and, and then kind of took some had some dangerous surgeries to regain his sight um, and has been critical in the past of some of the way Trump has talked about kind of the endless wars and, and the things like that. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, I was looking online today, you know, Trump, uh, Crenshaw is one of the many people who has had their books uh, promoted by Trump on Twitter. And he, you know, uh, the president seemed to particularly like some of the defense that Crenshaw gave of Trump's coronavirus response early in the pandemic. So Crenshaw is definitely an interesting character uh, in the Republican landscape, the Texas Republican landscape right now. Alex, I wanted to ask you, we had the DNC last week, and when there was not that many Texas speakers, there was outrage, concern, you know, why why they're not taking Texas seriously and things like that. Uh, now we have the one Texas elected official. I know Abby Johnston, the former uh, Planned, Parenthood, Planned Parenthood worker, is also from Texas, so I guess she qualifies as a Texan on the scene too. Um, but should we be taking the same conclusion from from the RNC that you know the Republicans don't care about Texas, they're not competing, or or what do we make of the lineup, the absence of Texans um, in general uh, on this on this event this week? I would say that I think Democrats were more PO'd last week because they see an opportunity to flip the state in 2020, and so they saw the convention as a way to broadcast that to a national audience and to really convey, you know, here are the star Democrats in Texas and here's what we're going to do to turn the state blue. I think Republicans, meanwhile, probably think that they have Texas in the bag, so they don't necessarily need to elevate too many Texas speakers. Uh, I haven't heard any complaints so far, uh, Svitek or Ross, correct me. Um, from the party or the Republican Party about there being a lack of Texas representation. Um, I was curious about why Crenshaw was selected as the rising star. You know, I, I think there are several rising stars in the Republican Party, uh, Chip Roy being another one of them. But um, yeah, I just think uh, probably the reason is because Democrats uh, saw, see the state as flippable and wanted the opportunity to present that to a national crowd. I wonder if they want to be there. I mean, you know, I wonder if behind the scenes, you know, if Cornyn wanted to be on the stage, I think Cornyn would probably be on the stage. I think if Mitch McConnell wanted to be on stage right now, he's not from Texas, but the same idea. I think he'd be on stage. It's, you know, it's a little surprising given their national stature that you don't see a Cornyn or a Cruz or someone like that, you know, even if you just kind of threw random, you know, did a random draw here. On the other hand, you know, you have to make way if you're going to have, I think this is right, five five different Trumps talking at the convention. They have, they have more Trumps than Texans on stage. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, and that could be one of the reasons why there's not many Texans is because Trump doesn't have any Texans in his family, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> Fact check me on that one, I guess. Um Patrick, I want to ask you just a little bit about the state of Trump's relationship with the Republican Party in Texas right now. You know, uh, the 2016 convention was a big moment for that, particularly when we saw Ted Cruz stand up on that stage and say, you know, vote your conscience and then get booed for it. What do we what do we make of the the you know, I think the polling would suggest that that. Texans, Texas Republicans are, are pretty fully behind Trump. Do you do you feel that from the kind of party apparatus, the elected officials and, and so on as well? 
Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, I think the party in Texas is, is solidly behind Trump and we're not approaching this um, general election with the kind of um, unease or intrepidation that some Texas Republicans had in, in 2016. Um, I think the polling supports that. I think the fact that even in some of the state's most competitive um, congressional districts that there's very little effort uh, to break with the president um, shows that as well. I mean, there's no longer, um, you know, you no longer have a battleground candidate with a profile like Will Hurd, um, who, you know, uh, occasionally, uh, you know, broke with the president pretty explicitly, either through things that he criticized him for or votes that he took, uh, you know, against his, his priorities or his agenda. Um, you no longer have that kind of profile in a congressional district. Um, most of these candidates in, in all these battleground congressional districts are ex have accepted endorsements from Trump in their primary um, or are aligned with him uh, by all appearances in, in the general election if they haven't already been endorsed by him. Um, so I think the Texas Republican Party is, is solidly behind Trump. Um, you know, there's certainly going to be in these races some nuance and some efforts to um, you know, acknowledge that voters in these battleground districts may not like his tone, but they should vote for him based on policy. And you'll see that kind of maneuvering, uh, but nothing, I think, on the level of some of the uh, unease that we saw in the lead up to the 2016 general election. There's no distance between Trump and Republican voters um, in, in Texas. If you look at the polling, you know, the reason I think that down-ballot Republicans, whether they like Trump or not, are not saying anything bad about him, is because they want their voters, and their voters really support Trump. So if you want to be in this party right now and be successful in this party with the base vote, you can't diss the president very much. It does seem, I mean, Patrick, in some of these polls you've been putting up on Twitter, putting in our uh, newsletter, though, that they're in certain districts, whether it's congressional or, you know, maybe statehouse districts, there might be some distance between Trump and some incumbents who are trying to hold on to their seats in terms of kind of the general polling, though. And I mean, is, is not one of the questions here, you know, at least in some of these swing districts that are going to be important to Republicans in the fall, whether they can get some people who maybe aren't big fans of Trump to still hold on and vote for them, uh, in the general election to allow them to hold their seat? Yeah, for sure. I mean, some of this Democratic internal polling that's come out in, in recent weeks, um, you know, Trump is doing much more poorly in individual districts than the Republican incumbent is doing. Um, and, you know, he's dragged, you know, by all appearances, uh, dragging them down. Um, and so, you know, these are polls that are coming out in state house races. And so those incumbents are going to have to figure out how to, to navigate that. Um, I think it's a, you know, at that point in, in a race that far down the ballot in the state house race, uh, I don't know how much separation you can really do um, to just escape that up ballot uh, effect. Um, you know, I think it's maybe a little, a little, you can be a little more effective in a congressional race or in another top of the ballot race, like the, the U.S. Senate race. Um, but you're, you know, farther down the ballot you get, especially in these state house races, um, you know, I don't know how much is really in your power to separate from the president and escape that drag. I mean, I know Ross watches the stuff very closely. I've interested in his thoughts. I, I just, you know, I think Trump's an environmental condition, you know, in yeah. terms of the politics in those districts. It's, you know, it doesn't matter particularly, you know, if you're down ballot, if you're in a Texas state legislative race, you know, what you think about Trump really, you know, doesn't come into it. But I think that you are 
subject to the political winds, and Trump right now is the prevailing wind. You know, yeah. so if you're in a district where there's a lot of Republicans, you know that that might accrue to your favor. Um, the districts where I think people are, you know, from both parties are really watching this are districts where voters who are switchable, and there's not a ton of them, but voters who are, you know, I might vote for a Democrat, I might vote for a Republican, are moved by this. You know, I would look at that Texas, uh, is it, help me with the number, I think it's Texas 23rd, uh, the congressional race yeah. that goes all the way from San Antonio over to El Paso. It's a true swing district. And if the Republican holds the Republican base, as you would expect, and the Democrat does the same with her base, the people in question are the ones who kind of go down the ballot and, and switch from time to time. And that's that's where the overall feeling about Trump really is going to throw a race. Before we move on to our next topic, let's hear a little bit from our sponsors. Texas A&M University, with land, sea, and space grant designations. Texas A&M is the state's premier Tier 1 research university, serving all 254 counties in Texas. And Texas Bankers Association. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Texas community banks have led the way in providing PPP loans to help small businesses survive. More at texasbankers.com. Okay, so we've talked about the Republican National Convention, the state of the National Republican Party, but the state Republican Party had its own little moment in the sun over the past week. It's about a t-shirt and a slogan, We Are the Storm. Patrick, can you explain to us why that slogan got some attention and, and kind of how this played out over the last over the last few days? Sure. So very shortly after Alan West became the new state party chairman late last month, I think it was, he unseated the incumbent, James Key. Um, he introduced this new slogan for the party, We Are the Storm, um, and was very aggressive in, in reintroducing it, putting it all over social media, ordering up merchandise with it on it. And it began to raise some eyebrows because the, the, the slogan, we are the storm, or at least the concept of this, quote, storm, uh, plays into and has some nexus to this QAnon, you know, baseless, wild conspiracy theory uh, that is getting more attention in the political world after um, a couple of congressional candidates have won primaries after espousing its views. Uh, the president, um, a couple weeks ago or last week, um, you know, declined to denounce the conspiracy theory during a White House press conference. And so it's really uh, become a part of the political conversation in the country. Uh, and so in conjunction with that, this state party slogan, uh, you know, is getting started getting a lot of uh, attention. And then there was a New York Times story where it was featured prominently as an example of how this conspiracy theory has really infected, uh, you know, the, the, the GOP in some very visible ways. Um, the state Republican Party, uh, you know, pushed back very hard on that New York Times story. Um, and Alan West's argument is, you know, is more or less that, you know, he there's no deliberate connection to QAnon with this slogan. Um, and he does have a, a relatively credible case to make. He has, when he was campaigning for state party chair, he drew this slogan from a broader quote um, that, from what I know is not connected to the conspiracy theory. Uh, it's an anonymous, unattributed quote. So there is some some question there about what exactly the origin of that quote is. Uh, but he is drawing this from a, a favorite quote of his that he did use um, throughout his uh, 
party chair campaign. Um, but at the end of the day, there is this, you know, this pretty striking overlap with at least this concept of the storm that's used in this conspiracy theory. And there's some members of the, you know, some activists and some members of the, the state Republican Party, um, you know, who we talk to for our stories. And I've seen quoted in other stories are basically saying, all right, fine. Like, I accept that this is not a deliberate connection and that you're not deliberately trying to you know, uh, elevate this conspiracy theory. Um, but like, why even go there and create the appearance? Um, and it's just a, you know, a very unflattering narrative for the, the state Republican Party um, at a time when they don't need any distractions like this. And they haven't yeah. dropped it, right? They're still using it. Yeah. And he's, uh, despite this recent uproar, you know, he's indicated he has no plans to, no plans to drop it. The, the the quote that he he's referencing here, I, I pulled it up from an old fundraising email that the RPT put out, you know, kind of before this was pulled up by the New York Times. Uh, the devil whispers to the warrior slyly, can it withstand the coming storm? The warrior responds, I am the storm. So if nothing else, it's a pretty dramatic uh, thing to, to pin your uh, state party slogan around. But, uh, you know, seemed to be like trying to make the case that, you know... Uh, you know, whether the storm was kind of the, the coming blue wave or whatever you want to describe it. Um, I, you know, I, I, I did when this uh, came up, because it is true, as, as you mentioned, Patrick, that he was, he was, he's been using this around this quote. Um, I haven't been able to find him using the quote all that much prior to his campaign for... Um, for uh, Republican Party chairman. So I, I think there is a, a decent question to, to be asking of, you know, as, as you noted and as your story on this Patrick race, like should he have kind of known better, particularly kind of with the problematic, um, um, you know, the problematic aspects of, of QAnon and, and the fact that, you know, the, this kind of conspiracy theory movement seems to be trying to like gain a foothold in the Republican party. Um, but I mean, you could also, I think pretty credibly make the case that maybe he's, he's not as studied up on kind of online conspiracy theories. It's one of those things that, you know, on, only he could really answer. He is now. And, you know, the yeah. question is, the, the question is, <laughs> the question is, what do you do with it? I mean, do, do you say, I'm just going to ignore those guys and keep this thing, or is this a hot potato and, we're going to begin our search for a new slogan on Monday. And, and Patrick, as you did mention in your story, you, you spoke to an expert who studies this this movement, and he, he talked about how uh, the QAnon adherents, I guess you would call them, I don't, I'm not sure, have kind of, they kind of look for anything to kind of glam onto, you know, any, you know, try to kind of imagine Easter eggs that are being dropped by people as kind of a... a you know, a sign that they're, um, that what they believe is true and, and that, that some of these kind of wild things that they're, they're conjuring up are actually happening. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the expert I spoke to is a, he's a political science professor in Florida or a professor in Florida who studies conspiracy theories. You know, he pointed out that the people who follow this conspiracy theory, they're always looking for what he described as quote breadcrumbs. And that's why they've, um, you know, taken so much, uh, or paid so much attention to Trump's uh, statements around this because he speaks so imprecisely and leaves so much open for interpretation and really creates this void for them to come in and say, you know, hey, like, you know, he's not denouncing us. He must be with us. Or, you know, he's, you know, said this 
phrased this way. Um, so that must be a signal of support. And so the expert I was talking to just said that that's why, you know, it's important to be, um, you know, unequivocal and precise around this stuff because the people who are fueling it online are indeed looking for any little opening uh, to, to say that someone is, you know, uh, in solidarity with them. Right. Okay, well, that uh, covers us for today. Thank you to Ross, Alex, and Patrick for appearing. And thank you to our sponsors, the UT Health School of Public Health and Big Bang Texas 2020, also Texas A&M University and the Texas Bankers Association. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.